This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my Master Your Anti-Diet Message online workshop, which is now open for early bird enrollment for a few more days if you're listening to this episode on the day that it drops. If you're a fellow health and wellness pro who's ready to stop taking part in diet culture's version of health and start advocating for non-diet approaches that truly help people's well-being, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com message. That's christyharrison.com message. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 176 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Vinci Chue, a former bariatric dietitian turned certified intuitive eating counselor and health at every size advocate, who's also my community and content associate here at Food Psych Programs. We talked about weight loss surgery and its consequences on physical and mental health, Vinci's journey from working in the weight loss surgery field to specializing in intuitive eating and health at every size, what thin privilege really means, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. And I just want to give a trigger warning for the question itself because the person uses the O word, not in quotation marks, you know, seriously uses the O word. So if you're likely to be triggered by that, just skip ahead about 30 seconds to skip the question and hear my answer. So now I'll read the question, which is from a listener named Jenny who writes, Hi, Christy. I'm on a journey of recovery from bulimia. I'm working on adopting intuitive eating, but still have have that internal fear that my set point is much higher than my current weight. I believe this fear persists because I was an obese kid and have a family history of obesity. What would you suggest to mentally move past this fear? At this point, I'm worried that if I do gain a significant amount of weight back, that the childhood shame will return and that I will give up on intuitive eating. Thank you. Your podcasts have been extremely helpful in recovery. So thanks, Jenny, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So I can totally empathize with that fear of weight gain, which is so normal for anyone living in diet culture. And many of the people I worked with when I was treating acute eating disorders had the same fear. And I get a lot of questions about this on the podcast and in my intuitive eating online course. So you're really not alone. Diet culture creates the fear of weight gain and foments the fear of weight gain. And so it's completely understandable that you would have that fear. And this is why ridding yourself of internalized diet culture beliefs, aka the diet diet mentality and embracing fat acceptance and health at every size are so essential to eating disorder recovery. Remember that diet culture is what instills in us the belief that larger bodies are bad, quote unquote, and smaller bodies are good, which is total bullshit. And, you know, this toxic belief system drives people to do terrible things to themselves like disordered eating and overexercise and other forms of self-harm and internalized stigma. So diet culture is really what perpetuates the belief that thinner always means healthier, but that is just not true. So bulimia and other forms of disordered eating are not healthy. They're the antithesis of health, right? And I'm sure that's why you're working on recovery because you have found that the 
risks and the problems that you're having as a result of this eating disorder outweigh whatever benefits you are getting, whatever, you know, sort of coping mechanism you're using it for. And it's true that eating disorders are incredibly dangerous to your health. Bulimia in particular is really a huge risk to your heart, your esophagus, and your digestive tract. It puts you at risk of heart attacks, esophageal cancer, and sudden death. So it's a huge problem. It's really dangerous. And so you need to really be able to recover from that in order to be in good health. And we need to bust the diet culture myths that being in a larger body or being in the so-called overweight or obese BMI categories, you know, what I call all the O words, is automatically unhealthy because it's absolutely not. That's just not true. We have tons of evidence to show that weight stigma and weight cycling, aka yo-yo dieting, can explain some or all of the excess health risks associated with being in a larger body. So remember, correlation does not equal causation, right? That's the golden rule in statistics. And so even though there are some health problems that are more strongly correlated with being in a larger body, that doesn't mean that being in a larger body causes these health problems. And it's likely that what explains the association or the correlation is the fact that people in larger bodies experience higher levels of internalized weight stigma, and they also are more likely to try to shrink their bodies, which leads to weight cycling because diets don't work, as I'm always saying on this podcast, and the vast majority of people who embark on weight loss efforts end up weight cycling. And I delved into all the science behind this in my debate at the FENCI conference for dietitians, which I shared an excerpt of in episode 172. So you can listen to that for more depth on these ideas of weight stigma and weight cycling. And you can also download my slides from that talk now by going to christyharrison.com slash FENCI 2018. That's christyharrison.com slash FNCE 2018. But beyond just learning about health at every size, it's also super important to reprogram your brain to start seeing larger bodies as worthy and good and even beautiful and recognizing that people in larger bodies are smart and capable and hardworking and kind and diverse and human, right? Just like people in smaller bodies. And so one way to do that is by listening to this podcast, which you're already doing, because when you hear my guests in larger bodies share their stories... My hope is that that will help you build empathy and compassion and connection to them as human beings and thereby help break down the negative stereotypes that you've internalized from diet culture. And another way to do that is by filling your feed, your social media feed, with images of people in larger bodies living their lives and dressing cute and sharing their messages of fat acceptance and lots more. So my friend and past podcast guest Meredith Noble of Made on a Generous Plan has this great list of body positive Instagram accounts that she recommends for this purpose. And we'll link to that in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at christyharrison.com slash 176. That's christyharrison.com slash 176. And so that's a little bit of the mindset stuff um, that I'd recommend doing. And then the other piece that I would really recommend is the eating disorder recovery work itself. So I definitely don't recommend jumping straight into intuitive eating from bulimia or any other full-blown eating disorder because those disordered behaviors take a major toll on your body and can totally skew your hunger and fullness cues such that trying intuitive eating could ultimately make your eating disorder worse because you're trying to listen to cues, hunger and fullness cues that are really skewed in the first place by the eating disorder. 
So what I recommend instead is working with an eating disorder treatment team who's well-versed in intuitive eating and health at every size, including an eating disorder dietitian who can create a recovery meal plan to help you nourish yourself adequately and reduce the disordered behaviors so that eventually you can be behavior-free and then start getting back in touch with your body's natural cues and your natural ability to eat intuitively. So to find a dietitian like this, you can check out the Certified Intuitive Eating Counselors Directory, which we'll link to in the show notes for this episode. And you might want to cross-reference that list with the list of my podcast guests, which you can find at christyharrison.com slash foodpsych. A couple of recent eating disorder dietitians that I've had on who'd be great are Heidi Schauster from episode 168. Jesse Haggerty from episode 140, and Haley Goodrich from episode 128, whom I know does remote recovery coaching via Skype. So that would be an option, perhaps, for wherever you are in the country or the world. And of course, Marcy Evans from the last episode, episode 175, is also an amazing eating disorder dietitian. So these are all folks who are very well-versed in health at every size and can help create a recovery meal plan for you that will help you get to full recovery where intuitive eating is actually possible in addition to helping you do some of the body image work in conjunction with a good therapist. And speaking of therapists, you can also look in that Certified Intuitive Eating Counselors directory, which again is linked in the show notes, to find good eating disorder therapists near you. Acute eating disorder recovery work is really best done with a treatment team in your area, like in person. So I would search that directory for therapists near you and also look at another website called haescommunity.com, H-A-E-S community.com for therapists as well. And we'll link to that in the show notes too. And again, you can cross-reference folks you find on these lists with the list of guests from this podcast because we've had probably a couple dozen amazing therapists on the show who are all really well-versed in health at every size and whom I would definitely trust and recommend. And I know that seeing a therapist and a dietitian can be expensive, let alone a higher level of care that you might need and, you know, going into like inpatient treatment or intensive outpatient programs or whatever, depending on the severity of your eating disorder. And so I know it's expensive, but it's also really important to make that investment in your recovery because your life truly depends on you healing from this eating disorder, both the quality of your life and the quantity of your life. Because again, like I said, eating disorders and, and particularly bulimia are incredibly dangerous and risky to your health. And so if you're struggling to afford treatment, you can check out Project HEAL, which gives grants and scholarships for treatment. They're a pretty great organization in that regard because treatment is expensive and they get it. So you can check them out at theprojectheal.org, and we'll link to that in the show notes for this episode as well. And then for Indigenous folks and people of color, past podcast guest Gloria Lucas runs free support groups through Nalgona Positivity Pride, which is at nalgonapositivitypride.com, which again, we'll link to in the show notes. So I hope that helps. And just sort of to recap and summarize, I think the way forward for you is twofold. One is doing the mindset work to reduce your internalized weight stigma and make peace with the idea of potentially ending up in a larger body and learning to accept and see larger bodies as beautiful and worthy and see the people in them as beautiful and worthy. And then the other is doing the eating disorder recovery work, getting real serious help for your bulimia before you try embarking on intuitive eating because it's really not something to do on your own and you deserve help and you need help in your recovery. 
So I hope that helps, and I'm sending you lots of compassion and lots of pro-recovery vibes your way. To submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it a lot more quickly than I'm able to here, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has a wealth of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating, plus an exclusive monthly q and podcast where you get to ask your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers I've given to other participants already so that you can work through all kinds of different sticking points in intuitive eating and really put it into practice in your own life. When you join, you'll also get access to our private Facebook group exclusively for course participants so that you can have real-time guidance from me and my team as well as hundreds of other great folks who are on this intuitive eating journey. A participant named Megan recently finished the course, and she said, This course has been an amazing journey for me. I appreciate all the time and effort you put into it. Another participant named Emily said, You are just an effing legend. Since starting this course, I'm now making steps to starting a business, and that could never have happened without the freeing up of headspace that your content has created. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. We're brought to you today by Casper. Y'all know I love my Casper mattress, and with three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural shape. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-did-they-do-that size box with free shipping and free returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Sleep is seriously my favorite form of self-care, and I have had better sleep on my Casper than with any other mattress I've ever owned, and they didn't even send me a free one or anything. I bought mine years ago before they were even sponsoring the show, so that is a totally genuine endorsement. And now I'm psyched because they are supporting the podcast, and they're giving my listeners $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash food Psych and using the code food psych at checkout. That's casper.com slash food psych and use offer code food psych F O O D P S Y C H for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. We're also brought to you today by Tomboy X. This is another sponsor that I genuinely love because for Tomboy X, size and gender inclusiveness are central to their whole brand, and I love to support brands who really get it like they do. Tomboy X is revolutionizing the underwear game by making underwear to fit you and how you see yourself. They have everything from bikinis, briefs, boxer briefs, trunks, and boy shorts, to soft bras and racerback bras, and they're all incredibly soft and comfortable. They come in everyday basic colors and fun seasonal prints like red and green plaid right now and these adorable little penguins wearing sweaters and flamingos doing holiday activities and I just can't even deal with how cute all this stuff is. And regardless of where you fall on the size or gender spectrum, Tomboy X offers amazing underwear that anybody can feel comfortable in. Now you can support the podcast and support their amazing mission at the same time by going to tomboyx.com slash foodpsych and checking out their special bundles and pack pricing. Food Psych listeners will get an extra 15% off with the code foodpsych. Again, just use the code foodpsych, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for an extra 15% off. Ditch whatever you're wearing for a pair of Tomboy X underwear. Go to tomboyx.com slash foodpsych. 
This episode is also brought to you by Poshmark. Instead of buying new things, head to Poshmark to shop from millions of closets across America. I use Poshmark myself and I often recommend it to my clients because when you're healing from diet culture, one of the biggest things you can do for yourself is to buy new clothes that fit the body you have now and are actually comfortable and get rid of old clothes that don't fit and are just sitting in your closet triggering you. On Poshmark, not only can you get great deals on pre-owned clothes from other people, but you can also sell your own clothes that you don't wear anymore. Shop from tons of brands all across the size and gender spectrum, including plus sizes and kids' clothes as well. You won't believe the deals you'll find, and shipping is super fast and easy for both the seller and the buyer, and is handled all through the free Poshmark app. When you see something that you want, simply make the seller an offer so you can get the items at a price that works for you. When you're ready to clean out your closet, listing on Poshmark is incredibly easy. Just upload pictures of your stuff to the app, set a price, and then ship it to the lucky buyer. No more waiting in line at your local thrift store just to leave empty-handed. Today, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you enter the invite code FOODPSYCH when you sign up. Just download the free Poshmark app, sign up, and enter the offer code FOODPSYCH, that's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, for $5 off your first purchase. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Vinci Chue. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So I would say my relationship with food growing up, or I would say even throughout my life, has been pretty good. Like probably the worst that it's gotten would be neutral. And I think a huge part of that comes from being protected by a lot of privilege. So I know I am, I have a Chinese background and I'm female, but other than that, I have a lot of privilege. So like I come from an upper middle class family, I'm uh, straight, I'm cisgender and I have a thin body. And I think especially being in a smaller body, my body didn't end up being what they commented on. And really, it was more about achievement was sort of the thing that they really valued. And so if I were to think of like little speed bumps on the way with my relationship with food, so that's not to say that I was, I've always been like a perfect intuitive eater. The two things that stick out for me that are sort of related to this idea of achievement are one, I think when I decided to be a dietitian, so that was towards the end of high school was when I decided that nutrition was the program that I would apply for. And I think even the process of going to university and being in a nutrition program, like you just start eating in ways, it's kind of like, this is how I'm quote unquote, supposed to eat in order to be healthy in order to be a dietitian. So that that's kind of a little thing that I see as a bit of a speed bump along the way. And another thing is this idea of money and like not wasting. So I remember this is actually like even a very recent example that we were out for a meal with my in-laws. It was my family and my husband's family. And toward the end, my mom was like, okay, everybody take a bite. of." So this was a Chinese meal. So everything was served family style. And my mom was like, everybody take one last bite of food so that it doesn't go to waste. And it was almost a bit of an awkward moment because obviously these weren't the same values that like my in-laws would have had. Like they're okay with just eating and stopping until they're full. But my mom was very much like, you need to clean your plate. And I would say like, that's kind of been something that's been carried throughout my childhood and my life as well. That's interesting. Yeah. How did that play out for you in childhood? Do you feel like that sort of took you away from your intuitive cues with food or 
How did that work? I think thinking back, it was not something that I really thought a lot about. But I would say even now, with this lens of intuitive eating, I definitely noticed that I'm someone who would very easily eat past the point of fullness, just so that I could like finish everything. Right. So the yeah, the sort of clean plate mentality was instilled in you from the beginning. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Where do you think that came from with your mom? And maybe your dad too? I don't know. But Yeah, I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks that it has to do with like, not wanting to waste. And again, this, maybe not achievement isn't the right word, but just this idea of following the rules and that it's quote unquote, the right thing to do. Like if you're being offered food, you need to finish it. That's kind of the quote unquote, polite and right thing. Right. Were you ever punished for not doing it? Or did you sort of just follow the rules and do it. And it was never an argument with your family. Yeah, it was actually never an argument with my family. I'm definitely a rule follower. (laughs) (laughs) And it's only been in like recent years that I've kind of rebelled a little bit more. But yeah, that was never a big fight that came up. But I would definitely say it was now that we're mentioning it, I'm just thinking of all the little strategies that my parents would use to like, try to get me to finish my meal when I was younger. So one I remember was, so in a Chinese meal, or at least the way that my family served their meals, we all have our bowls of rice, and then all the dishes like the vegetables and meat would all be in at the middle of the table served family style. So the thing that you had to finish was your rice. And so I remember when I was a kid, sometimes what my parents would do was they would for like the last few spoonfuls that I was like really struggling to finish, like they would put everything on the spoon and then I just had to like take the spoon and like put it in my mouth kind of thing. Or I remember another sort of saying was every like little grain of rice that you had left on your bowl was representative of a pockmark on your future husband. So if you wanted a good looking (laughs) husband... You had to make sure there were no grains of rice left in your bowl. Wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is fascinating. Mm -hmm. That sounds like such an old tradition that's been passed down for a long time. Yeah, definitely. So there are lots of rules, and it it was like a bad thing, definitely, not to finish food, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And it's still something that like I feel in me now, like even a very recent moment that I can think of was like I went out for food with a friend. And I think she had gotten like a sandwich or something. And she couldn't finish like it was I think the sandwich was cut into four. And so she couldn't finish that entire last piece. And then like, she just left it there. Whereas like, even my instinct was, Oh, you should pack that up and take it home. (laughs) So yeah, so even things like that, I notice. And that's interesting because you said, you know, you're you're from sort of a privileged background, like it sounds like food insecurity wasn't a thing for you. And yet there's this sense of not wanting to waste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And did that ever come into conflict for you with Western ideals about body size or thinness or any of that stuff? I would say as someone who's been in a smaller body throughout my entire life, like that's not something that's come up for me personally, but more something that I saw, I guess, maybe even in my interactions with clients where, yeah, kind of this idea of eating past fullness was 
quote unquote, contributing to their body size, that kind of thing. But for me personally, yeah, that wasn't something that really came up. Yeah. So thin privilege really protected you then from that kind of language and discourse. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. It's so interesting too how how that plays out because I think so many people from various cultural backgrounds have this like mandate to finish their food. You know, it's like such a common thing. And I think probably comes from however many generations ago people actually did have food insecurity and or maybe still do, you know, it's like some families who do have food insecurity currently still have that mandate because it's like you never know when you're gonna have food again. But sort of goes back, I think always to that for the most part like this idea that like it's proper to finish your food is because some people don't have enough and maybe our family didn't have enough at some point in history right and so there's that piece that's very salient for a lot of people in their relationship with food but then this western beauty ideal of and this idea also this idea from diet culture that like eating quote-unquote too much makes your body quote unquote, too large and out of control and bad, you know, and so these things are in conflict. And if you have thin privilege, you oftentimes don't have that second part and don't have to deal with that conflict for yourself. It's maybe you see it in other people, but you don't end up having to grapple with it on your own. And I definitely experienced that too, where thin privilege for most of my childhood and adolescence really protected me from having anyone say anything about that, you know? And when there are certain family members, like it didn't really happen so much in my immediate family, but in my extended family, there are certain people who are like, finish your plate or babysitters or whatever. And so I would, and I would be uncomfortably full, but it wasn't, it never had that added piece of like, and now my body size is going to be bad and wrong. You know, nobody ever said that. And I think that's one aspect of thin privilege. I think a lot of people have had a number of people write in to me about the word thin privilege because they don't understand it. And they think like, oh, it means that being thin is good. It's a privilege that everybody should want. And that's totally not what it means at all. You know, what it actually means is that there shouldn't be any difference between being thin or being larger bodied or anything in between in our society. And there shouldn't be a difference in how we're treated or how our relationships with food play out. But unfortunately, because of diet culture and because of the way our society does privilege thin bodies, not through any reality, but just just because diet culture has conditioned us to view thin bodies as better, that people in thinner bodies get sort of spared all this stigma that people in larger bodies have to deal with. And so, yeah, I think thin privilege is not something you should aspire to or that that's a good thing, quote unquote. It's not a good thing for sure. It's it's actually really a problematic, terrible thing. But I think those of us who just happen to grow up in thinner bodies experience all kinds of privileges that we don't we aren't even aware of until later when we sort of have to reflect on them or it's like oh yeah I didn't have to go through that crappy experience that so many people in larger bodies do and I'm grateful for not having had to experience that and yet it really sucks for people in larger bodies that they have to have their relationship with food ripped away from them at such a young age yeah exactly and I think too with thin privilege the way that diet culture sort of positions like the only way to get away from the stigma that people experience in larger bodies is to be in a smaller body. That's kind of like the only path that people are given when it's a path that doesn't work. Right. 
Totally. It's held up as this solution, as like the antidote to stigma. Like, oh, if you don't like the stigma you're experiencing, just lose weight and you'll be fine, you know? But yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't last. It actually causes much more harm than good. And what if we sort of threw out that model and said, actually, the solution to weight stigma is to stop weight stigma, not to help, mm -hmm. not to tell people to escape it by shrinking their bodies, which is not going to actually work long term anyway and causes lots of problems, even in the people, the small percentage of people that it does, quote unquote, work for where they are mm -hmm. able to shrink their bodies permanently, they end up with severely disordered relationships with food. And so what if we actually said, screw that and, you know, throw out that model and say, actually, let's like focus on dismantling weight stigma for everyone across the board. Yeah, totally. And I think that's what makes this work feel so tricky sometimes. I think because when someone in a larger body says people are going to treat me nicer or I'm going to fit in more clothes or or I'm going to be able to fit in smaller spaces, that is the reality that our society has set up. And it's just, I don't know if sad is the right word or like at least for me, like upsetting and angering that there's this feeling like I need to work with the system in order to gain power when really empowerment doesn't come from conforming. It really comes from, yeah, kind of really looking at, okay, like this system itself is problematic and we need to get rid of weight stigma and get rid of the problematic parts that create this system and create a new one and advocate for a new one that treats all bodies equally. Yes. Oh, that's so well said. I love what you said to you about like empowerment doesn't come from conforming. I think that is so true and something that, you know, our society completely disregards, right? It's, it actually, it holds up conforming as the path to empowerment mm -hmm. without acknowledging all the detrimental effects that that has on people. You know, the fact that it really steals people's personalities, it steals their agency, it steals their, it's the life thief, right? In, in this form of, of telling people they need to conform to a certain bodily look, and that'll be their path out of oppression. And it's completely, it's completely backwards, it's completely misguided. And yet, of course, people fall into it. Of course, people buy that rhetoric, because that's what we're taught. That's what we're steeped in. That's what we're raised in our entire lives. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. So I'm curious to go back a little bit to how you got interested in nutrition in the first place, because we'll get into your interesting path into health at every size. But I'm just curious what drew you in the first place to nutrition? Well, I always feel iffy about this story because it's not very interesting. <laughs> but so growing up, like I was always better at the math and sciences than I was at the arts, like English or social studies. So I think there was always this idea that I would do something that or pursue a career that was more sciencey. And it's interesting because as a Chinese person, sometimes there's a stereotype that's like, oh, your parents probably wanted you to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And I don't think in my family that was where the pressure was. It was actually to take over my dad's business was always like his dream. What was his business? His business is in Hong Kong and he does import and export of like 
home decor sort of stuff. So we're getting close to the holidays now. So he'll do like Christmas trees and ornaments and that kind of thing. And then like with the different seasons, so items that you would see at kind of home decor sort of shops. So he sells to retailers. And I don't know, it was just kind of like, I really respect that. At the same time, I just don't see myself working in Hong Kong. (laughs) (laughs) Like my Chinese is okay, but it's not that good. And it's just not where I was. So anyway, back to the idea of the sciences. So then it was like, oh, maybe I would be a doctor. But I think that to me at the time, to like high school Vinci at the time, it was like doctors are always expected to know everything and that is too stressful. So we actually had a family friend who was a dietitian or a nutritionist. And that's how I even knew that this was like a career that existed in the first place. And I don't know, like it was just something that I thought was very neat from a sciencey kind of perspective. And it was interesting because I would say like I went into it wanting to find out the biochemistry side, like how does the food we eat turn into all the different nutrients and vitamins and minerals that our body uses? Like that was kind of what I was interested in going in. And then I moved away for school. So kind of living on my own and where I went to school at McGill, the School of Nutrition is actually part of the Faculty of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences. And so it's actually on a separate campus from the main McGill campus. So we had like a campus farm and it was in a small town with like a little farmer's market. And so it was actually like when I actually went into dietetics that I became more interested in like the food side of it. But I went into it, yeah, kind of more interested in like the biochemistry science piece. But then like, of course, you take biochem and you have to learn how to draw like Krebs cycle. Um, And then you're like, never again. (laughs) (laughs) Good riddance. (laughs) (laughs) So did that sort of change your your interest then in, in dietetics and nutrition as you went through the program? Yeah. So I always say that I feel very lucky that the first career that I went into and going into a degree that was so specialized was something that I did fall in love with. So it was just interesting how like that very sciencey piece shifted more toward a love of food and yeah. and, And then over time, like kind of people's relationship with food too. Yeah. Did you have that sort of foodie quality growing up or not so much? Not so much, even coming back from university, like that was something that surprised my family and stuff like that. Yeah, because my mom would definitely say like, I was definitely not much of a foodie growing up. It was definitely more moving and living on my own and having to cook my own meals that that was kind of where it came from. Yeah, that makes total sense. Because it's easy to sort of outsource interest in food to like someone who's preparing your meals for you (laughs) when you're growing up, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And you said that around that time, your own relationship with food started to be a little bit more fraught, right? The sort of rules and regulations that you were, you were learning as a dietitian started to creep into your own relationship with food. What did that look like? I would say it was like really subtle. Again, it never developed into what I would consider disordered eating or an eating disorder, but it would be little things like 
there was a while when I stopped eating a particular food because I was like, well, it's high in this, 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 so it's bad. And then I brought that food back and now life is better. Um, (laughs) Or it would be like, oh, a serving of grain is this size, so I shouldn't be eating as much of these foods. Or even kind of early on into my career, like talking about a meal has to have a vegetable and a grain and a protein and like so really kind of sticking to those things and feeling and really feeling like something was missing if I had the odd meal that like didn't have a vegetable or a grain or whatever. And I think this kind of paired with the foodie piece as well was like I put pressure on myself a lot to like really make things from scratch as much as I could. So especially this was this would have more to do with, I would say, like parties and stuff like that. Say like for Thanksgiving, like I would make the pie from scratch and stuff like that. And this year for Thanksgiving, we bought the pies. And I was just thinking, oh, my gosh, a few years ago, I would have never done that. Like I would have insisted on making it. Oh, I so identify with that. Actually, I went through that s- a similar phase in my foodie awakening and work as a food writer and stuff where it was just like, oh, abhorrent, the idea of buying something to bring to a party or whatever. And now and before that and now I'm just like, whatever, <laughs> like, let's pick something up on the way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's feels like a sort of modern manifestation of diet culture in a way too. the way that like the emphasis on foods from scratch and also the sort of components of a meal being taken so seriously that feels sort of like a modern kind of wellness diet guise of diet culture that shows up in dietetics programs as opposed to maybe 20 or 30 years ago people were learning about different you know that then it was more like demonizing a fat and maybe it wouldn't have been such a bad thing to bring it like a pie that you bought from the store to an event as long as it was a low fat pie or whatever you know so there's just these trends that I think happen in diet culture over the years and when we're training to become dietitians we get immersed in them no matter what, you know, even if our relationships with food were okay going in, I think a lot of dietitians do end up with this fraught, rule-based relationship with food as a result of their training. Yeah. And I think it's so, it feels so subtle in the context of our culture that it's easy to dismiss it as like, oh, that's just eating healthy. When really, when you actually think about it, those rules aren't really necessary and can actually be quite disordered. Totally. And even if the dietitian themselves, you know, if the person adopting those rules isn't super rigid about them or it doesn't get to the place where it's like interfering with your life, you're still probably transmitting those rules to the people you work with in a way that could end up disordered for them. You know, I definitely think, I mean, I had my own very disordered relationship with food when I was beginning my career as a dietitian, when I was beginning and in the middle of my career as a food writer as well. So I just shudder to think of all the people that I transmitted disordered beliefs and behaviors about food to. But I think a lot of dietitians who are just sort of going through their career, not necessarily super disordered themselves about food, but still have these diet culture informed beliefs are still transmitting those beliefs to other people. And that's how it, you know, that's how the culture gets spread. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a good point in that. Like, I think, yeah, to someone who like is a dietitian or other health professional, like they might just kind of feel like these things are 
come easily to them or naturally to them. But when you share that with somebody else who might already say like genetically be predisposed to an eating disorder or disordered eating or just for whatever reason, just kind of takes the messaging very differently. Yeah, the outcome can be quite different. And it it sort of makes me think of like the patients that tell me, oh, I hear your voice in my head sometimes. I'm like, that is creepy. Like that is not okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Especially when it's like your voice and or yeah, your voice in their head telling them eat this, not that or whatever. Like, ah, So yeah, how did you transition then from that early training in dietetics to getting into the bariatric field? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in case listeners don't know me, (laughs) (laughs) I used to work in bariatric surgery for five years, actually. And it's actually been less than a year since I left that clinic. And it's funny because, again, it's like one of those things that when I tell the story, I don't think it's what people expect the story to be. So I started my private practice while I was still working essentially full time. And so I was just kind of on the lookout for jobs that were part time. And this part time position came up at what eventually became. So it was originally called a weight management clinic. And then eventually they switched to only doing bariatric surgery. So it was a part time position. So I applied for it. And I And I actually remember even in my cover letter, I had written something along the lines of if you had asked me like earlier in my career, uh, or if you had told me earlier in my career that I would work in weight management, I wouldn't have believed you because growing up, I would say the images that I got of weight management came from like a lot of like Chinese magazines where it was thin celebrities going to these like weight loss spas to be even thinner. And I like resented this idea that my job was to make thin people even thinner. I don't know if it came from like, and I don't want to create eating disorders place, but it was almost like these people don't need to lose weight kind of thing. And then so I I had sort of written something along those lines, like this wasn't something that I had expected to do as a dietitian was to help people lose weight. Because again, I kind of went into the career more into the science piece. But then I think I wrote something that was like, well, I guess I didn't put it in quotes at the time, but like obesity is an issue. So that is a big health issue, right? Like just because that's the narrative that we're trained in. So here I am. (laughs) 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 Sounds like you're ambivalent about it even (laughs) even to start. Yeah. So I kind of fell into that job in that way. And I think we sort of have to, I don't know if give credit, it would be the best way of saying this, but like, I would say that in the world of obesity care, I think the narrative has sort of moved away from this idea of weight loss at all costs. And you do hear a lot more about how they care about weight stigma or and that kind of thing. But it's kind of like they have only come so far and they are very happy kind of sitting on the fence. And so that's kind of where the struggle is. But I would say like the fact that they have been sitting on the fence and how it's not about getting everybody to a quote unquote normal BMI, that that did help with the eventual transition to doing health at every size work. Mm, That's interesting. So like the clinics sort of fence sitting 
approach probably helped you get on the fence too and then eventually get over the fence but that sort of was due to health at every size more than more than their influence at that point Mm -hmm. yeah so I'm curious to dig into that a little bit because I think in this day and age, you know, I've, I'm writing about how diet culture shape shifts so much and how right now it's really manifesting itself as the wellness diet where it's not, it's supposedly not about weight loss or like weight loss is just seen as a side effect of like getting healthier, quote unquote. And a lot of weight management programs like Weight Watchers is a prime example having just changed its name to WWs to like, you know, move away from the idea of watching your weight to the idea of wellness, because the new tagline is like wellness that works. And it's all about reappropriating the idea of wellness and using that to advance the diet culture mandate that it still has. And it's still selling weight loss. It's just under a new guise. And I think it's very sneaky and very insidious because a lot of people who think that they don't want to diet anymore and are sort of ready to be done with it might fall into something like this, like Weight Watchers new WW line and be like, oh, well, this is healthier. This is better. I'm not trying to diet anymore. This isn't a diet. It's a lifestyle change. That's like Weight Watchers and everybody else is now using that sort of tagline of it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle change. It's not a diet. It's wellness. And I'm curious how that showed up in the sort of weight management world that you were in, and especially the bariatric surgery world, too, because I know that that often is touted as the solution to diets. Like, well, diets don't work, so get this surgery. Yeah, I would say it's all those things. (laughs) It's a lot of kind of looking back now with what I know now. It is absolutely a lot of co-opting essentially of health at every size language like there's a book within written by two very high up kind of people in obesity canada that's literally called best weight and it's this idea the way that they defined it was like your best weight is the weight where you're eating as little as you can but that you still enjoy it or moving in as much as you can but still enjoying it so that's where this like obesity as a disease kind of framework came in as well was this idea that the purpose of bariatric surgery is not to help you to lose weight but to help treat your disease was kind of the framing that was used but like those would be the ways that it showed up it was very much like oh it's not about your weight. It's about helping you feel healthier. Right. Totally. Yeah. I think that is very much in line with the wellness diets rhetoric of like, it's not about weight, it's about health. And Mm -hmm. health means losing weight. Yes. But it's not just about that. Right. It's like, Mm -hmm. or health comes from losing weight too. You know, this idea that, that weight loss leads to health. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was just like, yes, this idea of your best weight will be just like the weight that you fall into. And it it's okay that it might still be in like the obesity category of BMI. But I think, yeah, the implication was your best weight was a lower weight than your current weight. I think that was always implied. And also this idea of like eating as little as possible and exercising as much as possible to achieve it as though that was any sort of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say like not as little as possible, but it was like as little as you could enjoy, still enjoy or as like much as you could still enjoy. 
which is such a razor's edge to have to walk, right? Yeah. And it, but yeah, again, it's like still this implication that it's like probably less than what you're doing now or probably more activity than what you're doing now. So yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs> very subtle, very, yes. very insidious. How did you feel when you were doing that work? Like, when did you start to have some qualms about it? So when I started to just kind of look more into health at every size and intuitive eating was actually from listening to this podcast. Ah, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So my husband and I, like my husband, his family who lives like a nine hour drive. Okay, maybe nine is long, but like a long drive away. And we always go and visit them for holidays and we would always listen to podcasts. And so one year I was like, I wonder if there are any podcasts by dietitians. And I searched like dietitian podcast and food psych came up. And thinking back, I had been exposed to the idea of intuitive eating and all that stuff before. So actually, like Evelyn Triboli came to, it was either Calgary or Edmonton. So sort of like the big town, the capital of, of Alberta. And so I'd seen Evelyn Triboli speak live. And I remember she had so much energy and she was so inspiring. I And I did read intuitive eating kind of earlier on in my career before I started at the bariatric clinic. But the way that I sort of internalized the message of intuitive eating when they were talking about putting weight on the back burner. It was almost like if you don't think about weight and then you do intuitive eating, then you will get to a healthy weight was sort of the way that I ended up internalizing it. And early editions of that book even, I think, said that, you know, like the first two editions. That's why I always say, like, get the third edition. But even that has a little bit of that sort of language with it, too. Because mm-hmm, I think the edition that I have is the third edition. And that was just how I interpreted it. I think just coming from diet culture and coming from, you know, a very conventional nutrition education. And I remember there was another like Dietitians of Canada conference where Lucy Aframore spoke. And oh, wow. again, like, did not internalize. (laughs) And I remember kind of listening to food psych on the way there and back. And I remember that first question that came up for me was, is it possible to be body positive and still want to lose weight? And I remember putting that question out there to a bunch of dietitian groups and everyone was like, oh yes, yes, of course you could love your body and still want to improve it. Or there's no way that you can lose weight without loving your body. And then I was like, oh, but like, can we really say that weight loss is an improvement? Or like, isn't body positive about liking your body as it is right now? So that's when the wheels started turning. And yeah, I just kind of started exploring intuitive eating and health at every size and body liberation more. That's so cool. It's really great that it the cognitive dissonance started for you and that even if everyone around you was like, oh yeah, totally, body positivity and weight loss are for sure compatible, you were like, mm, something's not right. Yeah. That's awesome. And how did that evolve then when you were working in the clinic? And also at what point did the clinic switch over to being mostly about bariatric surgery? Mm, I think the clinic did switch over before that. And In a way, it was almost easier for me to come from a health at every size sort of perspective, because then I just sort of saw myself as like a surgical dietitian instead of a weight management dietitian. So it would have probably been like the last 
two years that I worked at the clinic where I started shifting my private practice over to be more health at every size and obviously like trying to do like covert haze at the clinic. And so I remember what I would always say to people at their first appointment with me was I was like, okay, so my role as a dietitian is just to make sure that you're well nourished going into the surgery. And then after the surgery, making sure that you're meeting your nutrition needs with the restrictions that you have from the surgery. So that's how I started to try to separate myself from it. And sort of one thing that was kind of lucky for me in that clinic was we didn't have a weight loss requirement to get the surgery. So there are other clinics that say you have to lose a certain amount of weight before that you could even have the surgery. So fortunately, like my clinic didn't have that. And I wasn't put in a position where I was supposed to like, quote unquote, help people lose weight to get the surgery. So it was helpful for me in that I could be like, okay, my goal is just to make sure that you're eating enough going in and then eating enough going out of the surgery. That's nice. That's that is actually a rare thing, it seems like in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were other problematic things that the clinic did. But yeah. Well, and then just sort of the basic core of it being that bariatric surgery is surgical intervention to shrink someone's body. And that's, that's definitely not in line with health at every size. But I think it's, it's one of those things too, that ASDA, the Association for Size Diversity and Health, which has the trademark on health at every size, is constantly having internal dialogue about bariatric surgery and people, you know, often ask questions about it. But I, as of now, as of this recording, I don't think they still have an official position paper. I'm not actually sure because I've been kind of out of the loop writing my book. And now I'm really sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that nothing has come out yet. And it was being discussed while I was on the board of ASDA, like putting out a position paper on weight loss surgery, because I think it's it's one of those confusing areas with health at every size, right? It's It's yeah. like... What is our sort of responsibility? What is our stance as health at every size professionals, as a community? Because I think the the aim is to embrace people who've had the surgery, who want to come over to the health at every size model, to embrace everyone who's had any sort of weight loss intervention, whatever, they've chronic dieters or whatever, who want to transition more into health at every size. Like, of course, we welcome people of all stripes and yet also having a sort of ethical stance that says... Yeah, this is still a part, you know, weight loss surgery is part of diet culture. It's part of this oppressive system that tells people in larger bodies they have to shrink themselves. And we totally get it that, I mean, from my perspective, it's like, I, of course, get it why people would want to have the surgery with everything they've been told and sold in diet culture and everything that diet culture does to stigmatize people in larger bodies. Like it does really put a lot of pressure on people, I think, to want to escape that stigma. And so, of course, understanding where the individual is coming from and why individuals make this choice and also acknowledging that it's it's not really a choice. It's pressure from diet culture that's pushing people to do this thing that's actually really dangerous and has a lot of complications and people should be aware of that. So it's kind of a tricky thing to like put into words. And I think there's a lot of confusion and questions about it. Yeah, yeah. And 
I think that's the thing. Like there are actually studies out there and maybe when I'm doing the show notes, I can find some, but there are actually studies out there that people who pursue bariatric surgery are exposed to more weight stigma or have been exposed to more weight stigma than people who don't. And so these are the people who are feeling more of that stress and more of that pressure to like quote unquote, do something about their weight or feeling that pressure of the stigma compared to the existing pressure that I think all of us do feel to a certain extent. So I found that really interesting. And I think you're right. Like it's kind of when talking about ASDA, it's like, how do we find the middle ground of respecting body autonomy while also, yeah, kind of standing our ground or having that position that this is harmful and upholds harmful messages and a harmful system and the surgery in and of itself carries harm. Right. I know it's a, it's a really delicate balance. And I think that's so important what you said about the, the research on weight stigma too, because the people who, and I think that's independent of BMI, right? That research shows that it's like, people of any size, I mean, mostly in larger bodies, but like of any point on the weight spectrum who have more internalized weight stigma are more likely to pursue bariatric surgery, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not just about like what size they are. It's about just how much stigma they have. And that that stigma makes them actually more likely to pursue bariatric surgery, which is so fascinating because I think Mm -hmm. it, it speaks to the fact that surgery seems like an, a way to escape weight stigma and it's held out as a way to escape weight stigma and that if people didn't have to experience that weight stigma in the first place, that they wouldn't be pursuing this risky thing. Yeah. And let's talk a little more about the risks of it too, like, you know, in terms of complications and what you saw as a bariatric dietitian and and what you think some of the the harms are that people should know about. And I did an episode, of course, with Lisa Dubriel that went into a lot of the the evidence on the harms of bariatric surgery as well. So we'll link to that in the show notes, but just kind of more from like your perspective on the ground in bariatrics, like what did you see? Well, I think like the risk of nutrient deficiencies, obviously like being the dietitian, that would be like kind of the one thing that would stick out for me. I would say like, at least in our clinic, we didn't see a lot of complications from the surgery itself. So I would say like, we had a couple people who ended up developing strictures after the surgery. So esophageal stricture. So I'm going to try to say this in like, layperson language. (laughs) So basically the esophagus is sort of the tube that goes from your mouth to your stomach. And the stricture is basically a narrowing of your esophagus. So we had one or two people who developed strictures. And so that means that they can't swallow. And they basically had to go in and try to get their esophagus dilated. So they actually stick a balloon in and like try to make the opening wider but it's not something that lasts. So they would have to like keep on going and back for it. I think eventually one of them had to be on tube feeds at home just to get enough nutrition. So that's definitely one like actual complication of the surgery itself that sticks out for me. Later on in the time that I was there was when our clinic started doing what they call revisional surgeries. So it's basically like, when your first weight loss surgery doesn't work out for whatever reason, they will do another one, which is 
so harmful, (laughs) you know, especially when I say it that way. And so obviously, because of like scar tissue and stuff from the previous surgery, then the risks associated with the revisional surgeries are so much higher. So some complications from that too. But from a nutrition standpoint, just being able to eat enough. And I remember I was doing a presentation and I, and we were just talking, just talking about like general nutrition recommendations after surgery. And I was saying like, you know, these are the amounts of protein that we would typically recommend. And I remember someone from the audience was like, well, you know, I work in general surgery and we typically recommend this amount. Like how come you're not recommending this amount for this higher amount for your patients? And it's like, They can barely get in this lower amount that I'm telling them to eat, let alone, you know, like this higher amount. So there's just like an incongruence between like the amount of food that will support someone like healing after this major surgery and like the amount that they're able to take in and like the whole rigmarole of like all the different supplements that people have to take and blood work that they have to do. And and it's expensive to be buying all these vitamins and supplements. And I know it's not so much in Canada, but definitely more so in the States. Like there's a whole industry of bariatric protein supplements and vitamin supplements and high protein foods and, and all this stuff. So it's tricky. And it seems like, I mean, from the research I've done, I I have a section on bariatric surgery in my book, and I looked at whether people are actually getting the nutrients they need and the the vitamins that they're, because of how a lot of surgeries are malabsorptive, which means that that they reduce your intestine and your stomach's ability to absorb vitamins and minerals and other nutrients, you have to take these special vitamins. You can't just be like, I'm just going to take a Flintstones or whatever and, and call it a day. Like It has to be higher and more concentrated and more easily delivered. And it seems like bariatric surgeons tell people about certain vitamin deficiencies that are like the most common and the most known on average, basically. There are some surgeons, of course, that do, but on average, bariatric surgeons aren't telling people that they have to be on special specific vitamins and mineral supplements. They aren't telling them about certain deficiencies that they could have. They're telling them about sort of the most common ones, but not some of the other ones that are in fact very common with bariatric surgery that things like B12 or whatever that could potentially lead to nerve damage if not adequately treated. And so there's a lot that doesn't really get communicated, it seems like, to people who've had these surgeries about how just like intensively they're going to have to take care of themselves after the surgery. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and that brings up for me, I had one patient who eventually had to have all her teeth removed because her like gums were having issues. And, you know, when like she went to the dentist, the dentist was like, it was actually low iron and it was low iron that was like caught in her blood work. But I don't know how it got missed that like she wasn't taking the right kind of iron because like on top of that, iron is already a hard supplement for people to take, like even without surgery. I don't know if any of your listeners have experience with either 
anemia, or even if you're pregnant, having to take a prenatal multivitamin with iron in it. Like for some people, it can be very constipating. It can be very irritating for the gut. And so especially after surgery, the supplements can be hard to tolerate. And so this patient, like she was like, yeah, my dentist told me that my iron was so low for so long that that's what contributed to her like gums kind of wearing down and basically having to have most of her teeth removed. That was tough. God. That's horrifying. And yeah, the nutrient deficiencies part, it's not something that surgeons or anyone touting bariatric surgery really talks about in any real way. But it, it basically for a lot of the surgeries, you know, the the ones that anything other than the band, you're giving yourself nutrient deficiencies that you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life. It's not just mm-hmm. while you're healing. It's like the rest of your life, your body's going to be compromised in its ability to absorb certain nutrients. Yeah. Did you see any sort of one of my, not favorite, but one of the complications of surgery that just always jumps out at me because of the name is dumping syndrome. Like, I think that that's one of the most common, right? Yeah. So common. And so like for people who aren't familiar what dumping syndrome is, so there's the quick reaction, which is like exactly as it sounds, like you eat something and then you get diarrhea. And then there's also a form of dumping syndrome that can happen like even like three to four hours after you eat that basically comes from. So what happens is that you eat something and like both types of dumping syndrome sort of happen from food moving through your gut too quickly. Because you don't have as much gut, right? Like that's with a lot of the surgeries that take out part of your intestine. So it just hits really fast. Exactly. And so what ends up happening is that this food hits your gut, it causes a spike in your blood sugar. And so your body responds by releasing a ton of insulin to bring this blood sugar down, but then it overshoots. So then you end up with a low blood sugar. And so then you get like that dizziness, the nausea, the clammy hands, and there's nothing that you can really do once you get dumping syndrome other than wait it out. So there was a lot of problem solving around that as well. And and I think because it does revolve around talking about certain foods, it really reinforces fears around certain foods. Which is interesting because people, a lot of people who get bariatric surgery have undiagnosed eating disorders, right? Going into it or certainly very disordered eating from years of chronic dieting and trying to shrink themselves. So you know, people are coming in with really problematic relationships with food already, really difficult relationships with food already, and then being told not to eat certain things or having these really severe reactions when they do, I can imagine just further exacerbates their issues with food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think there is a push for more pre-screening before going into bariatric surgery, but I think they're mainly screening for eating disorders that meet DSM-5 diagnostic criteria. They're not necessarily screening for disordered eating. And then you also have to think about us all being steeped in diet culture. Again, things that we are we think are like, oh, it's just someone who is trying to be healthy when it's actually something very disordered. Those are things that are probably going to get missed in this pre-screening. Totally. I've been really thinking lately that I feel like DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for eating disorders are almost a way for diet culture to absolve itself of responsibility. 
because, and I, I don't think that they evolved. Like, I don't think that the people who created them explicitly thought that, but I think it's just, it's a part of our culture and it's a part of what diet culture does to sort of perpetuate itself to want to say, oh, those people over there have eating disorders and they're not like us. They took it too far. They're extreme. That's not what we're about. We're about healthy eating over here in the quote unquote normal camp. And it's a way to kind of, you know, sectioning off eating disorders like that is a way of diet culture absolving itself of guilt and of making itself seem like this discontent that most people feel with their bodies and with food is normal and is okay and is the way it should be. And it's only when you get to this quote unquote extreme place of having a diagnosable eating disorder that it's a problem when really it's always a problem. It's a problem all along. And the people who have the diagnosable eating disorders have just usually gone on longer having the problem that that most of us have, you know, they've gone on longer, they've had things that maybe push them further, like extreme experiences of weight stigma or trauma in their life that push them further into the disordered behaviors than maybe other people have had to experience. But like, it's always a problem. It's always disordered behaviors with food, disordered beliefs, diet culture beliefs about food, chronic dieting, like all of that stuff is just as much of a problem as the diagnosable eating disorders. It's just that the way we frame it in our culture is to say eating disorders are over here and everybody else is okay. And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. And I recently, yeah, just had a, a conversation about that with someone else who, yeah, was new and curious about, you know, health at every size and working with disordered eating. And it was like, well, how come I can't tell people to do this if they don't have an eating disorder? And it's like, well, it's because it's not okay to say this is only not okay for, you know, people who have anorexia, like it's not okay for everyone. Yes. And the people who, I mean, I've, I'm thinking about my conversation with Rachel Milner on the podcast, who had an experience of being in a larger body with anorexia and getting ignored or getting praised for her disordered behaviors. And then eventually the anorexia went on long enough that she ended up in a smaller body. And that's when people took it seriously. But she said, you know, one of my favorite quotes of hers from that episode was like, my anorexia was not worse when I was in a smaller body than in a larger body. It was just that being in the smaller body got me recognized or whatever. I forget the exact word she used, but it was so powerful because I think that's very true for a lot of people is that they go on for years and years or decades in disordered behaviors with food and don't get acknowledged and maybe never get acknowledged, never get diagnosed, never get help that they deserve because they're in a larger body and people just assume that the dieting behaviors they're doing are healthy when in reality they're exactly the opposite. They're incredibly harmful. And it's only when people end up emaciated that we're like, oh shit, this person needs help when no, everybody needs help. It doesn't matter what size you are. If you're doing these behaviors, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what did you see in, you know, your work in the bariatric clinic in that regard, like with people's relationships with food before and after surgery? Did you did you see it exacerbate things? Did you see people's relationships with food change at all? Yeah, like, I think because the way that post-surgery eating was 
presented like it was very regimented kind of like I said it was like about you quote-unquote should be eating this much protein and in order to get that amount of protein with a smaller stomach like people had to be eating a lot and so it was essentially another diet but it was almost like it was okay because I just did quotation marks in the air and I was like, oh, that doesn't translate (laughs) to the podcast. But it was like, oh, now this is a diet for the surgery, like not a diet for weight loss, if that makes any sense. And so I don't know if we ever improved people's relationships with food. Although, Although one interesting thing was that with some people, because they were losing weight, that actually enabled them to give themselves permission to eat. So yeah, again, it's this tricky thing with diet culture and with smaller bodies, like it just kind of traces back to what we were talking about before about how we live in a society that gives more power to smaller bodies. And that was how it sort of came out for some people was that actually like having that power of being in a smaller body, it allowed people to give themselves permission to eat food that they thought was in the past, they would have attributed to their weight gain or higher weight. So so that was like one interesting outcome. But I would say there were still a lot of people who were basically still stuck in diet mentality, but it was just like a new set of rules that were being layered on top of what they were doing before. Yeah. Oh, so much to untangle the the diet mentality from years and years of fighting their body and then the diet mentality of these surgical, you know, post-surgical restrictions. It's a lot. So I think, yeah, to anyone listening who is struggling with that, who's post-bariatric surgery, I think it's important to just have this conversation and reassure people that they're not alone in having these struggles because I've seen a number of clients and, you know, I don't specialize in bariatric surgery. I just specialize in intuitive eating, but people who've come to me who've been post-bariatric surgery, you know, years out or decades out even and said that they still struggle in their relationship with food and they're so ashamed and that having had the surgery, they felt like they shouldn't have regained the weight and they did and they feel like there's something wrong with them. And in fact, it's so common. I mean, there's research showing like at least 50% of people do regain some or all the weight that they lost on bariatric surgery too. So it's like incredibly common to have these kinds of complications and to have weight regain. And yet so many people feel so alone and like there's something wrong or broken about them because they're going through it. So I think it's it's great to hear your experience with this and just to kind of shed some light on this area that I don't think gets talked about enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And there's just so much. And in that, like, you know, the more that we're talking about it right now, like the more that it brings up like this idea of people blaming themselves for not keeping the weight off or not quote unquote succeeding or not losing enough weight. Like I remember, I think the way that surgery was presented, like especially being in Canada and like having the surgery covered because it was very much like, well, the other option is you could go to the States or to Mexico and pay for the surgery. But here we're like offering it to you for free. Like as long as you're like jumping through all these hoops and it was almost like 
presented in a way that was like, you like are so privileged to get this surgery for free. And I think like this sort of gave people this feeling like, oh, like I can't mess this up. And I remember we did sort of an orientation class. Yeah, kind of like a pre-surgery, like prep class. And I remember one of the slides in the class essentially saying you are responsible for preventing a lot of your complications. So it was talking about like being in the hospital and you need to make sure that you're getting up and like ambulating right like and walking around the halls like right away after your surgery and or like you have to remember to like cough and stuff to make sure that air is moving through your lungs like it was very much you need to make sure that you're doing these things while you're in hospital to prevent complications and it was almost the way that it was worded on the slide that like you are responsible for preventing some of these complications jeez yeah and so it sort of reinforces that it's about the individual. And I think too, even with the stats that like 50% of people regain their weight, like obviously like when you're going into the surgery, like you think I am the other 50%. And I think that was one of the things that kind of pushed me toward health at every size as well was people were having this surgery and they were seeing some physical health benefits like yeah their blood sugars were going down or blood pressure was going down they're being taken off their pills and the research does bear that out that that physical health markers do improve with surgery but mental health markers either stay the same or get worse. And I think those are some of the things that you talked about with Lisa Dubriel on her episode. One of the things that I saw was, oh, like I'm in this clinic and again, being like, this is about health, not weight. But for the patients, it was so much about weight. It was so much freaking out if their weight plateaued or like, why am I not losing as much weight as so-and-so? And it was heartbreaking to see people come in and be like, oh yeah, like this is all about health. But when they actually had the surgery, it was about weight and that was tough. Yeah, that's really tough. And I think that speaks to the fact that like Lisa Dubriel said in her episode, losing weight doesn't fix poor body image. Losing weight, if you have the surgery and you end up losing some weight, it's not going to be enough. It's still that fixation on why am I not losing more? Why am I not losing as much as so-and-so or whatever? And the body image piece is still a problem, even though people are sort of artificially conditioning their body to lose weight. And the mental health piece, like you said, I mean, there's this new research that came out, a meta-analysis of studies showing that the risk of suicide is definitely significantly higher for people who've had bariatric surgery than people who haven't. So mm -hmm. that really says something, I think. Like if people are putting themselves at risk of suicide to maybe shrink their body in that 50% or whatever of cases, maybe and giving themselves lifelong complications like dumping syndrome where they're going to have to, you know, run to the bathroom and maybe have some embarrassing situations that kind of curtail their life in many ways and also the risk of nutrient deficiencies and surgical complications and strictures and all of that. It's a lot that people are putting at risk for the potential, not even the guarantee of shrinking their body. Mm -hmm. And there's a theory that that is why mental health doesn't improve or like gets worse is that 
the outcomes for a lot of people don't meet up with the expectation because like even for someone who does lose weight and keeps it off you have this new thing of loose skin and all the care that's involved with that and then the question comes up is like do i pursue further surgery to remove this quote unquote excess skin and for the few people who did have it i mean so this was another thing with the clinic that i worked at it was because of how much staff we had we only had the capacity to follow people for a year after the surgery and then they were discharged from the clinic and that first year is the quote unquote honeymoon phase of the surgery like that's when people see weight loss because a weight regain doesn't really happen until later on in the road and so it makes me think like how many people did we miss or like to talk about the skin surgery like because of the way that some of them are done like some people have said like it's even more painful than the bariatric surgery because a lot of the times the weight loss surgery they now do laparoscopically which means like they put in like tiny scopes and they're tiny tiny incisions but if you're doing skin removal it's a much bigger incision so there's more healing more pain involved with that there's just so much going on in that world that when people sort of say like, oh, surgery is the easy way out. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no. Let's talk a little bit about your transition to health at every size and your private practice and what you're up to now. Sure. So sort of in the past, I guess, couple years, I've transitioned my practice from kind of weight management, sports nutrition really trying to find my place in the nutrition world. So I did my intuitive eating counselor certification two summers ago and really just immersed myself in that space. And I think it's really cool because I, I feel like I finally found where I belong and what I want to do. And what I found, at least from a business perspective, is that like when you are grounded in your messaging, that's actually when people will come to you because they know what you stand for. Because I think for a lot of dietitians who are newer or newer to private practice, we always feel like, oh, like we need to say yes to every single client that comes in our door, every single opportunity that comes our way. But really, it's almost like, so the analogy that I often use is you don't expect to go into an Italian restaurant and like have them serve you sushi. So <laughs> being grounded in like what you offer is what's going to attract people to you from the bi a business standpoint. And so, yeah, so that's kind of what I've been up to and a few like exciting things that have come out of this. So I recently started a weight inclusive dietitians in Canada Facebook group, just because like I know there's already a lot of other Facebook groups and they have really helped me in like learning more about health at every size and working in this space. But I thought it would be helpful to have sort of an exclusive Canadian group just because like our healthcare system is a little bit different from the US or like there's a huge like Australian sort of contingency as well. And so, and then it's also nice to just like feel like it, people are kind of closer to home and it's been super successful. I think we're almost at 300 people now and like 250 of them kind of came over like Canadian Thanksgiving long weekend. So that wow. was like, super, yeah, <laughs> so that was super cool. Yeah. 
I'm doing my yoga teacher training right now. So I should be finished in February. And I had originally gone in like just from the perspective of like seeing a lot of overlap between like yoga philosophy and intuitive eating and mindful eating. But like the more that I like I'm getting into it, I'm like, oh, it would be cool to be able to teach and offer kind of more inclusive yoga classes that way. So we'll see how that influences my practice. And then I also have a book coming out New Year's Eve called The Mindful Eating Workbook. And I've been very lucky in that. So it was an interesting sort of way that it came about in that I'm working with a publisher. They have editors who write outlines and then they just look for authors to like write to like the editor's outline. But they have been very open and allowing me to include a lot of like health at every size sort of concepts in that book. So yeah, so a lot of interesting stuff coming up. That's so exciting. So tell us where people can find you and learn more about all that great stuff. Yeah, so my website is my name, which is impossible to spell and <laughs> pronounce. <laughs> so it's vinchichoy.com, V-I-N-C-C-I-T-S-U-I.com. So I'll link to that in the show notes. And then I'm on social media. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at VinciRD. Amazing. And yes, we'll link to that in the show notes as well so people can find you and learn more about your work. So great talking with you, Vinci. It's been a long time coming and I'm so glad we finally made it happen. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Christy. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Vinci Chue for joining us on this episode and thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear this anti-diet message because who doesn't in diet culture by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you share it on one of the Apple platforms, it helps bring us up higher in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us and so that we can continue to drown out some of those pro-diet messages that are in the health category and keep rising up through the ranks. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another Another way to help new listeners discover us and is always so appreciated. If you're looking for some practical tips to get started on your own anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. And then to get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, the, all the tons of resources I mentioned in the answer to my question and the ones we mentioned in the interview, head over to christyharrison.com slash 176. That's christyharrison.com slash 176. And to get a full transcript of this episode, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my Master Your Anti-Diet Message workshop, which is now open for early bird enrollment for a very limited time. If you're a fellow health and wellness pro who's ready to stop taking part in diet culture's version of health and start advocating for anti-diet approaches that truly help people's well-being, learn more and sign up for the workshop at christyharrison.com message. That's christyharrison.com message. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, and to my Food Psych Programs team, including our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, whom you just heard from in the interview, our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, and our new transcript assistant, Kiara McClellan, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. And the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. 
Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid, I'm scared. No work in the kitchen now. Who put